Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Cruz. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Against all odds, the 2022 Berlin International Film Festival returned to cinemas this year after last year's virtual edition. For this week's podcast, we invited two of our Berlin Alley correspondents, Jessica Kiang and Edo Choi, to discuss and debate some of the highlights from the festival. Our spirited conversation touched upon some highly anticipated titles like Claire Denis' Fire and Bertrand Bonello's Coma, as well as some surprise standouts, Ulrich Seidel's Rimini, Siddle Schaublin's Unrest, Alan Girardi's Nobody's Hero, and many more. For more on this year's Berlinale, including dispatches from Jonathan Romney and Erica Balsam, subscribe to the Film Comment Letter on filmcomment.com. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we have two excellent guests, Edo Choi and Jessica Kiang, who are fresh from the Berlin Film Festival, the International Film Festival, the Berlinale. Jessica, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, well, I think fresh is an unfortunate choice of adjective there. We're actually all exhausted. Uh, yes, I'm Jessica Kiang. I write for Variety, for Sight and Sound, for Rolling Stone, for the New York Times, for Rolling Times, for Revel Paley. I live here in Berlin, so um, the Berlin in many ways doesn't ever end for me. And uh, this particular festival feels more like it has not ever ended than most. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into it. And yet it was shorter this year, I think, right? Than yes, that the was past. the problem. Shorter ah. that somehow managed to seem longer. Um, yeah, I mean, we should definitely talk about that. Were there fewer films? Some sections were slimmer, but still, when you have a competition of like 20 films or so, and you suddenly squeeze those all into five days of press screenings, it means that you're showing four competition films a day, which is basically impossible for anybody to keep up with. Uh, obviously, I understand so much about like all of many of the, the awkwardnesses of this year, um, trying to mount a live um, uh, festival in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and I, you know, we, we're all trying to be as forgiving as we can of all of those inconveniences. But the one thing I really don't understand is why that somehow necess- necessitated that we go shorter and squeeze so many films into such a short period of time. It really just felt kind of chaotic and exhausting. And of all of the innovations that had to come up, they had to come up with in order for, for to go ahead. That's the one I really, really, really hope they dispense with next year. Yeah, it was it was it was a marathon. Yeah. and a sprint at the same time <laughs> and and by and by the end you're just yeah you're like unable to to really digest what you're watching so yeah i mean we, we found that full disclosure we did not go to berlin but we were able to see a lot of the films yeah we we saw what what came our way but there certainly seemed to be a lot going on edo you already spoke you gave yourself away but you didn't introduce yourself uh, Edo Choi, assistant curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. I was at the Berlinale to cover it for Reverse Shot, writing my dispatch this week. Well, maybe let's start with the film that I feel like was most talked about when the lineup was announced, which is the new film by Claire Denis, uh, which for a long time I thought were two different films because there is this very confusing thing where the film's European title is both sides of the blade and of course it has a french title too and the u.s release title is fire uh, utterly mystifying to me because there's no fire involved so we have 
fire, we have both sides of the blade, which I think on both sides of the blade, my problem is that both sides of the blade is a genuinely terrific title. And a song in the film. A song in the film, and it gives you a, it gives you a real way into the film as well, which is, I mean, we'll talk about it in a minute, but it's not one that I necessarily adored. And I think that actually even just the title, Both Sides of the Blade, makes more sense of the film. The French title actually translates to With Love and Stubbornness, which is also a shit title. I guess only the British get the good title. Uh, no, I think internationally, internationally in Europe, it goes under the international English title, which is Both Sides of the Blade. Yeah, so this was the title comment podcast. Now we will move on to the <laughs> film comment podcast. Well, speaking of the title, I just think, and, and Devika mentioned this, but there's a theme song at the end that where, the, you know, Stuart Staples, like, breathes, sings, uh, both sides of the blade, kind of, it's in a very Bond theme song kind of way. Clint's impressions are always, like, raring to go. It was like the 60s theme song, and and I felt like the... I was struck really by the by the soundtrack, which I know that Tinder Sticks and Stuart Staples always do her soundtracks, but this one really felt like it was consciously evoking kind of a lush '60s Morricone vibe, or like a maybe even more of like a melodrama, like a British melodrama, where the where the strings would kind of swell and drift, and then that you have this theme song that is the title of the film at the end, and I really had this kind of like it just seemed like a very uh, that was where the genre element of this movie really kind of popped out to me. I completely agree. And I, I think that's also, that's actually one of the things that is marginally my difficulty with this film. I, I, I think that the soundtrack is so the strongest element. I think the soundtrack actually does so much of the heavyweight lifting, storytelling lifting in, in the film that actually I'm not sure what the rest of it is there for, like some, sometimes. I, I mean, I thought the best part of the film for me were the performances. I, I think it's a... It, isn't it a superbly acted film? I mean, it's it's the film is the performances. Well, let's talk. Let's like give a little quick rundown of what the film's about. It stars Julia Binoche, Vincent Landon, and Gregoire Collin. They're all Clarity regulars. Uh, so it starts off, and you have this beautiful relationship, this long-standing marriage between Binoche and Landon's characters, and then over time, it becomes clear that there's this third, this uh, figure from the past, uh, who's played by Collin. And he's sort of inserting himself back into their uh, perfect lives and wrecking all sorts of havoc. And it turns out over time, you could come to find out that he was Vincent Landau's business partner in some kind of youth rugby agency of some kind, <laughs> like scouting professional rugby players. It's very elliptical. I mean, there's so little that we understand of the backstory. I feel like that's important to specify, even as you're sketching the plot film really holds its cards close to its chest and the the main thing though is that Juliette Binoche left Gregoire Collin for Vincent Linden like many years ago and now he's back and Vincent Linden has a son the mother is from Martinique and there's some oblique references to her as his former wife whom he left for Juliette Binoche um, so, you know, there's this complicated backstory that's, that's hinted at, but that's where that's, that's the other, like, it, it's very much like a soap opera storyline and you have all this soap opera kind of hidden underneath the surface. And then you kind of get these glimpses of this, of melodrama. And I think that, that, uh, that the soundtrack really kind of like drags you back into that intense emotional world. Go ahead. Did I miss anything? Plot? I mean, the plot continues. Gregoire Collin comes back and 
start some kind of business with Vincent Linden. Again, it's really not clear. I find this very fascinating about the film. The way they talk about it and the way they meet up and there's it's so sinister. It's like, is it secretly a drug cartel? I don't know. It's It's so... You know, everything is so mysterious. The characters are mysterious. And that's what I mean, that I think a lot of that texture and a lot of that that intrigue comes from the soundtrack. We're, we're actually not given anything else. I think it comes from Gregoire Collins' smirks in the film. But I kind of like that. It's like, so he has, so often there's, there's a lot of shots of him like in the distance observing and he kind of turns to the camera and does this like, villain devilish grin smirk thing like raises his eyebrows <laughs> and there's these close-ups yeah and and then the camera like goes you know, i think there's maybe like a slow motion shot of him like smirking at the camera but i think that's one of the interesting things about her handling of that character is that for a movie that's that based on dialogue and backstory and at least the script is based on a lot of dialogue and backstory this is the character we actually don't hear much of um and much from and He's he's handled a little bit more like like a regular Denis character. The mystery that enshrouds most Denis characters landed in the middle of this other film. He has an almost like spectral. He's like a textbook cipher. Yeah, he's like yeah. almost an idea within the imaginations of Vincent Landon and Binoche than he is an actual kind of three-dimensional person. For sure. And he's very much like a, you know, a devilish character, a devilish figure in their imaginations like he's drawing them into this darkness and a violator yeah 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 and i i think what i really liked about it was like it's triangular in the truest sense of the word where the sympathies of the various characters and and their allegiances really are not clear or one directional so even though you know on one level it's Juliette Binoche's torn between these two men. But Vincent Lindon and uh, Gregoire Collin also seem to have a homosocial, homoerotic bond. The secrecy they have around their relationship and the almost, Im- I mean, some sometimes improbable intimacy they seem to have, despite their, what it seems like is a pretty fraught history. It all gestures at something more, though the film never really gives it away. Juliette Binoche's character also, you know, seems wrapped up in a lot of lies and self-delusion. So even you can't really tell, you know, who she really loves, what happened in the past. And there's a way in which I, the film doesn't really have a true protagonist. I mean, I think it's kind of a tug of war between Vincent Linden and Juliette Binoche. For me, Vincent Linden came out on top. I mean, the film also kind of gives him the last word in a sense because of this epilogue. I thought that was really fascinating, this this triangular narrative that genuinely seems to tug in each direction and where the characters are really vying for your sympathy. I mean, sympathy is a simplistic word for it, but... Um, and all of that richness, I mean, there is a lot of plot, but there's also not that much plot because the plot is just these gestures and hints, you know? It's not... There aren't like narrative mechanics and it's just these characters saying things and running into each other and touching each other and seeing each other and just feels like there's so much movement and feeling in the film that comes from very little, just, you know, these ineffable kind of charges that go in these three ways between these these three people. I I felt very overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I also thought it was very powerful, but I'd like to hear Jessica's... Uh... Take down. Take it apart. 
No, absolutely. Everything that you've said is completely true, but I'm, I land on the other side of every single one of those points, basically, that you've made. Other side of the blade? Yes, the other side of the blade. And the love triangle, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, it, it exists in this in this very strange way. And I mean, I will say that the film is 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 unusual. Um, but uh, so this this love triangle for me, actually, the problem with it is it like um, it's a scaling love triangle. Right. So it, n- none of the sides are equal to the other. All right. All right. We don't know what that is. Yes, we do. What do you take us for? Because it was on the New York Times crossword two weeks ago. Was it? Okay. Just, it was. It was. Anyway, <laughs> keep going, Jessica. Uh, <laughs> So, so it's it's a very unequal love and, uh, love triangle, the, and and what you're talking about when, when you're talking about sympathies and where our sympathies lie. I think that you know ultimately, uh, actually, it does sort of come down in in terms of Juliet Binoche's character being the the character in a way. For me, that's what both sides of the blade that title kind of works as because actually we're supposed for me, I think we're supposed to see these two men as both sides of this blade of hers. So she's the blade and they are each side of them. Uh, Vincent Landon being kind of the rough, true side of the blade and 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 Goygar uh, Calon being the sort of smooth, subtle, insinuating, slick side of the blade. So I'm imagining her, I'm imagining her as a hunting knife. Yes, it's true. I'm imagining her as a hunting knife, one side serrated, one side smooth. But anyway, so maybe I'm getting too much into the both sides of the blade thing, but still. So for me, it's supposed to be for me, she ends up being the protagonist. I think it's quite clear to me that I think we're supposed to go on this journey with her. And that's one of my fundamental problems is because if you're involved with a love triangle where, where you have a, a, you know, a, a central pivot point for this love triangle, I just, by the end of it, I was wondering why I was watching a love triangle with somebody who I found it so very difficult to even like or relate to on any level. And when you're talking about, I mean, she absolutely does give it her all. Juliette Binoche never doesn't give it her all. And I almost think that's a problem here. I almost think how much she commits to this role is kind of a problem because it makes me believe her even when she's lying, even when she knows she's lying. I I somehow believe her. And so I feel, I then felt weirdly cheated at the end when it suddenly becomes that like, she actually is just on occasion looking directly at Vincent Landon's lovely character, and he plays the most lovable oh, character. So tender, yeah. And, and she's looking him directly in the eye with that completely disingenuous expression of which only Juliette is capable and, <laughs> and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. On and her she, knees, yeah. On her knees. But everything you're saying, Jessica, is for me why the film is so good, you know? It's great because Juliette Binoche's character is so convincing and so unlikable and so slippery yeah. and so genuinely disingenuous. To herself, too. And and I, th- I think the imbalances of the film are, like with almost all Denise films, like part of what gives it the life, right? Like there are these structural imbalances. She, she was, in this interview, referred to how her films are a bit like lame or something like there's a limb that's too short or you know just structurally that there's always something a little bit wrong or deformed about her work and she expressed that she was disappointed about that but also that that's kind of part of her affection for the films and that that I think is true here too where there are these dissatisfactions with the actual material like in the structure of it but that kind of gives it a a charge, right? That gives it something uh, destabilizing. And there's also this uh, quality of, yeah, the heroine, much like in uh, Ebosele Anterior, is she's 
unlikable, I suppose. I, I mean, I don't know if I've really liked referring, using that word, but she is certainly a, a character who's making misjudgments and things and who whose misjudgments lead her into places where, into cul-de-sacs emotionally that we're kind of maybe apt to criticize her for. But I kind of love that because it's messy and the film really leans into the messiness. Uh, the arguments are in, are kind of beautifully written, I think, because they're not written like movie arguments where people have these ping-ponging points that land exactly on target. They're written in this circular... I mean, there are lots and of non sequiturs. Sometimes exactly. it doesn't even make sense what they're saying to each yeah. other. Yeah, it, They're circular and they're prolonged. And sometimes it feels like they're exhausting, not just for us, but they're exhausting for the characters. And that feels like real arguments mm -hmm. to me in relationship yeah. and arguments I've had for sure. And I, I have to say, I, I agree that unlikable is too simple a word for what Benosha's character represents to me. I, I also think that... There's usually kind of these two options in these sorts of films uh, which have, let's say, you know, fraught women at their center or whatever, you know. And it's like there is a reading of the ending of this film where you could read it as like uh, Juliette Binoche is finally liberated in a way, you know. And it's kind of redemptive of her hysteria and her deceitfulness. But I don't think that's what you come away with because... At least I didn't come away with that feeling at all. I didn't feel like, oh, she's finally free. I, I didn't feel like I needed to vilify her. But at the same time, I don't know, I liked that it worked against this kind of simplistic pop feminist reading of what it means for like an adult woman to be caught between the passions of two men. And I do think that at that moment, you think, okay, this film is about Binoche. But then you see the epilogue and it's Vincent Lindon and his son. and then the film kind of like settled into place for me where, you know, I thought, okay, actually he is the main character. He's the one who had my sympathies throughout. And even though he's not, I mean, in, in a way he was also torn between two poles, obviously. But I, I thought that that sort of sense of cheating that you talked about, Jessica, I felt like that was this intentional, almost like this bait as if testing us what we would feel for Juliet Binoche and then giving us the character that I think most of us probably, you know, loved throughout the film. Absolutely. And I mean, I do. And I, and I think, and I do think that I, for the record, I do think I, also for the record, I don't hate this film at all. I just find, found it disappointing in the context of Claire Denis' career, which is a career I adore. So, but but yes, exactly what you're saying, though, about um, this sort of pivot towards Vincent Landon, I think that might have worked better had the subplot with Vincent Landon and his son been knitted more organically into the fabric yeah, of the yeah. film overall. Sure. I do think that's very yeah. separate. And there's a, that weird like cameo with Mati Diop, who's in like two scenes, and you're like, why is she, why is she here? She's a pharmacist who just shows up randomly on a on a subway platform at and one like point. Helps out so, a kid. Yeah, so so if if that had if if there if that had been more organically woven into the fabric of of the of the movie to date, I think then there might have been a satisfaction in seeing that pivot work in the end. And for me, it it, it wasn't at any point along the way. So it felt like slightly glib or something actually to suddenly refer back to this. Um, but also, I mean, and again, I, I I'd like. I really don't want to put people off seeing this film, but but I do have significant problems with it. And I love I love a Claire Denis film with a limp. I mean, as you're saying, Edo, I love I love a film with a limp. I just don't like a film that's hobbled. And this film felt to me slightly hobbled, like it was 
that 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 some of these some of the things that we're talking about as its pluses and they are its pluses like these performances are incredibly committed and incredibly strong and in the moment very um very uh invested in the truth of of their characters as they see them but i actually think the problem actually is more fundamental i think the problem goes back to the script that they are so deeply investing themselves in because i don't think that that script is actually up to snuff co-written with christine uh, ango like in um let the sunshine in yeah. Yeah. yeah and it, and based on based on a novel of hers i think isn't it so some of the questions that that edo was 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 uh, some of the conversations sorry that edo was talking about that these sort of very uh non secretary random sort of conversations i think that they're that's absolutely true that is the way conversations happen in real life but there's a reason that they don't happen like that in movies i found some of those extremely frustrating um and actually just like long and like kind of dead air in the middle of in the middle of what is a, a, the soundtrack is telling us and these performances are telling us is a high key melodrama and you're just like get the fuck on with it actually i i mean for for me that's the risk of the film right i mean like and 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 it pays off it's the risk of walking on both sides of the blade playing both sides of the blade <laughs> yeah but because i just uh, i find that particularly this final argument this final fight this this final, um, I mean, point that the film drives towards, where it's 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 Binoche and Landon, Jean and um, Sarah, the characters in this darkened apartment, shot all handheld by um, Eric Gautier, the great French DP, who I think this is the first time that she's worked with him, and uh, the photography reminded me a lot of, particularly in this scene and in some of the other arguments, um, the photography he did for Leos Carax and Paula X in the late 90s, and, um, and also uh, maybe Desplechins' My Sex Life. But there's, there's, there's this sort of uh, crepuscular quality to the light and this sense of the world outside being shut out, which I think is, uh, structurally played off against these daytime shots, which are often shot on phones, um, uh, like iPhones uh, or of like, you know, pedestrians in Paris and the Metro and stuff like that. And so for me, it all kind of drives towards this point and to move from these brief glimpses of a kind of quotidian life to a sustained and like entombed long, like, almost endless seeming fight that you know kind of just ends in disintegration more than like explosion um i don't know it just worked the, it it worked for me uh and um and i i found it uh like kind of um what's the word like like the characters self degrade like the the the, the binash character's point where she gets to the point of degrading herself on her knees in front of the Landon character. It, I don't know, it, it uh, had a kick to it for me. I was just sort of like, yeah, I know this sort of spiritual desolation and desperation. And I, I kind of recognize where this character's found herself or brought herself to. I also love that they're all like 60 too. Like this is a movie about violent passion, the yeah. violent passions of the almost, you know, Medicare aged. Yeah, the almost adolescent kind of passions of full grown-ups. Speaking of adolescence, there's another movie by a by a great French director. <laughs> some may say he's great, some may say maybe not so great. Well-regarded French director, 
Bertrand Bonello uh, had a had a film called Coma, which uh, focuses on his adolescent or eighteen, I think eighteen, seventeen year old daughter. Devin, do you want to walk us through what this movie is all about? Clint, you saw it before me, and you described it as kind of you know a pandemic movie, which it is, but it's so much more realized than you know what that term evokes, and I was really surprised by that. So it is. I don't know if the movie is really about his daughter. It's also a very elliptical kind of fragmented movie. I don't know if there's like a very clear sense of reference or narrative, but it does open with a dedication to his daughter, um, you know, a kind of voiceover where he says, you know, to Anna and uh, very long dedication as Jessica is <laughs> gesturing toward me, uh, which I it actually was a short really... Film. Yeah, it's yeah. only about an hour long. It was a short film from that he made prior to making Coma. Oh, you mean and the dedication was? Yeah. In, yeah. in and of itself, yeah. And I, I thought it was actually fantastic, the dedication, and it sort, sort of returns at the end as well um, as an epilogue. And so he, there's this section where over these amorphous, sort of pixelated images, you know, he's talking, he's talking to his daughter, he's talking about his film Nocturama, which he had also dedicated to her and which was about teenagers. He's talking about the experience of the pandemic and uh, the ways in which, you know, it has sort of awakened us all to the strangeness of life, you know, these kinds of uh, observations, Um, which again, you know, you might think that there's something a little cliche about, you know, just talking about the strangeness and isolation and relationships uh, during the pandemic. But there's something very, there's like a horror element that he sets up in this dedication that is like uh, realized in the rest of the film that that really makes it, I, I don't know, I was really transfixed by it um, and was really paying attention to what he was saying and the way he was you know, it seemed he seemed to be grappling with the experience of the world during the pandemic. But then, yeah, but then it it kind of becomes a story about this girl played by Louise Lebec, who was also the lead in Zombie Child. And the film mostly just observe her as she hangs out in her room during this lockdown. And she's obsessed with this YouTube channel, uh, by this lady who's kind of a really weird wellness guru and her videos get like progressively weirder and more and more bizarre and dark. Um, and, you know, she markets like various little devices and kooky exercises, uh, the point of which is to like tell people that we have no free will in this world and everything is decided for us. And this sort of gets to the girl's head and she starts to like develop this kind of nihilism. There are these dream sequences where she's in this dark, desolate forest where it's like a subconscious field where she, you know, seems to run into this YouTube influencer and her friend there are like these zoom there's a zoom call with her friends that has like an extremely dark uh twist there's also animated sequences there's animated sequences with stop motion animation with like Barbie dolls like playing out some kind of soap opera who half the time are reading out just Trump tweets and also monologues of the monologues of serial killers. Her, she's becomes very interested in serial killers. I mean, this is the adolescent part. Like to me, this movie is really about an eighteen-year-old who can't socialize, who's like beginning to sort of in, investigate like 
the darker aspects of the world of society really there's also this surveillance footage that it's only brief but i found that probably the most frightening in the film which is people someone seemed to be observing her through a cctv camera as she's leaving her apartment you know and they're just like where did she go we can't we we can't see her anymore where was she yesterday the whole movie i seems to take place in her mind uh, and her kind of enclosed space and her projection of you know paranoia and desire for contact especially uh, and yeah and kind of uh a coming of age that is all happening without any other hu- without human contact kind of and uh i liked it a lot and i think it w- and i think it worked as kind of a evocation of the horror the more horror based aspects of growing up of being like a high school kid and kind of starting to see that things are not quite as comfortable as or nice as maybe you think they are and maybe going a little bit too far into that too but i don't i'm not sure you did you were not quite as excited about this one i was lukewarm on it i frankly it's actually my favorite vanilla film of the films i've seen because i'm not a huge vanilla fan i'm not i I, I didn't like Nocturama. I am okay with Saint Laurent, but didn't love it. And uh, likewise, Zombie Child. Um, and this one just felt like it had a urgency to it. Um, regardless of whether I think it all holds together, there's just such a, a raw emotional quality that it has. Um, I think because he's basically making it, yeah, it's personal. Um, making it about his or about, if not about, then for his daughter. Um, and then also, I just felt like it was a film that felt very, you feel very close to his thought process, you know, almost like a Godard film, where all of the associations he's bringing to it, he's bringing it to it without much, uh, he's not digesting them for you. He's just putting them there. Um, so, you know, it's clear that he watched a lot of Mindhunter, for instance, because there's all these serial killers and there's mentions of like Edmund Kemper and things like that. And I was just sort of like, okay, so I can, I can sense what it is that you've been spending your time doing Bear Trombonello during lockdown. And that really, I really related to that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I don't quite agree with Clint's reading that it's a coming of age tale or it's about like the horrors of adolescence. It felt more like a parent's fears and paranoid fears about what what the world is coming to and what that might make of their children, you know? And that's what felt very personal and striking to me. And I think it is associative, but there are all these ways, oblique ways into which this dread about the world that seems especially especially sharper and more revealed during COVID is seeping into how someone like Bonello is thinking about the world and thinking about the future, you know, the future generation and what kind of world they're inhabiting. That's why I kept returning to that scene of surveillance. I found it so striking and so like bizarre and unexplained, but that is that is like one of the defining experiences of not just modern life, but pandemic life right we've all been thinking about surveillance a lot and there's a lot of these other elements like wellness culture um you know and wellness capitalism specifically uh and the ways in which that's also been kicked into overdrive by covid you know all of these 
observations about the world that seem to really come from a place of angst about the future. And that's what resonated with me. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say, I, I mean, I'm going to keep it positive because I know I know Jessica's going to bring the fire on this one. Um, we'll give Jessica a movie that she likes. Yes, yes. But I, I just really like the actress Julia Foyle, who plays Patricia Coma, the influencer, the kind of strange, witchy YouTube guru. And I, I just, I found her really uh, just like fully committed <laughs> to uh, embodying this person that we can kind of both see as a snake oil salesman of a type, but at the same time as someone who is also, you know, there's moments where we see her in these rooms and they're shot, um, suddenly it's transitions to being shot on a higher resolution format, either film or higher resolution digital. I wasn't really quite able to tell where we suddenly feel like we're actually in the space with her And she's just drinking like a glass of wine on her own. And there's this feeling that we begin to sense her isolation as well. And she's no longer just a character in the mind of the young girl. She's actually another soul kind of lost in this digital or virtual space. And uh, I, I was really touched by that and and by, by, by the, by his treatment of that, the kind of slippery treatment of it. All right, Jessica, have at it, and then we'll and then we'll give you a good one, one or one that you liked. Uh, so, I mean, this film made me want to pull the skin off my face while I was watching it. I hated it. Okay, moving on. Let's go to the next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. I mean, actually, weirdly, again, like exactly what you were saying, Clint. I think like it is for me. It is very much. It's it's a very, I guess, you could say, insightful look into what is happening inside an eighteen-year-old's head who can't socialize, and you know, they're coming of age, and and you know, and it's exactly as unbearable as that as that is as that sounds. Um, I just found the the whole thing. It's also very clear to me that this was. This was this is thinking that was developed very early in the pandemic. So I, one part of my problem with it is it actually already feels dated. It already feels old hat. None of these ideas are new to me. I think we've all had these ideas, and it's absolutely true. We've all been in sort of similar situations, and we've come through some similar sort of half masticated ideas about surveillance, about about you know um, uh, online life, about influencer culture, all of those things during this period. And what I want from my filmmakers is that they at least curate those ideas a little bit. They at least chew them over, they mull them over, they make them into something. They don't just present them in an absolutely incoherent and unforgivably self-indulgent manner like this is. Unforgivably. <laughs> provide me provide me some roadmap for, for what it is that you have, what conclusion you have come to. And really, I, I can remember back in like March of 2020 already, or may, maybe May of 2020, like already tweeting and thinking about worrying about the kind of art that this was going to produce. Because I know if I had been a filmmaker, then I was already scared of what my head would have produced and thought was okay to, to do in a movie at that point. And I think this is that film. This is so harsh, Jessica. No. <laughs> I I have to say, like, I really don't think of it as a film about the head of an 18-year-old girl. Like, I think it's about the paranoid fantasies of a father. And I also I also don't really think it's about COVID. Like, I think it's really about modern life. Like, it's so much broader than just, like, going crazy during COVID. 
I don't think that you can possibly say that this film in anything resembling this form would have been made if it hadn't been for the pandemic. No, sure, sure. I think that it is picking up on things that were distilled or crystallized or catalyzed by the pandemic. But not just thematically, informally, in every single way that this film is assaultive, I think is comes directly from the conditions under which it had to be shot and the conditions under which it was conceived. So I really don't think that you can divorce it from those from the pandemic. Yeah, totally. I mean, I really enjoyed that sort of improvised aspect of it, or the like the incoherence of the of the different elements. And I, I mean, I thought that was kind of it made it kind of exciting and loose to me in a way that maybe like Zombie Child, which feels so controlled, and I thought was like did not successful and yeah in a way that's different from all his films right because all of the other films are super controlled and, and very plotted yeah but i do agree jessica that the film is a kind of a you know it's a bit of a mess and so i guess why i you know i i've, I've said articulated the things i liked about it why i don't love it has to do with a bit of all the kind of irresolution to um not irresolution in a sense of meaning, which would be productive, but there's a structural irresolution to it, I think. I think it, he just hasn't really quite figured out how all these elements go together. And that both makes it exciting and makes it a bit inconclusive. I mean, it's adolescent in its in its perspective and its subject, I think. But I kind of, there's something about that that I found kind of endearing. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Can we please talk about a film that I like next? I actually think Rimini will be quite a fertile one to talk about. For, for me anyway, my uh, the most complete and the best film that was in competition this year in Berlinale actually is one that came away with no awards whatsoever. Um, it's a film called Rimini by Ulrich Seidel. And uh, Rimini follows the, um, the misfortunes of um, an absolutely unforgettable lead character called Richie Bravo. And Richie Bravo is a sort of a, a washed up club singer who is now an uh, Austrian club singer, who is now living in Rimini, um, which is obviously a, a beautiful Italian beach town, but it's in the off season. So most of the film takes place in the off season. And it's, I mean, trust, trust Austrian formalist Ulrich Seidel to be able to go to Rimini and make it look like one of the most depressing places on earth. Um, so Richie, um, the, the outline of the plot is very simple. Like Richie is sort of living this weird hand to mouth existence in Rimini uh, amongst the sort of peeling posters of his former glory um, uh, in a rundown villa. And he is he does the occasional hotel club nights to sustain himself, but actually mainly he's sort of a gigolo to some of his um, fan base who are exclusively women over the age of 60, I would say. Sort of um, a gigolo. Sort of a gigolo, yeah. Basically, he—he, he, I mean, he has sex with them for money. But he's a very—I mean, actually, at the beginning, he's actually a very good gigolo. He's, he's sort of—he's quite caring, and he seems to have actual, genuine relationships with these women. So the fact that they pay them, you know, at the very beginning, you really think this is maybe Ulrich Seidel on slightly softer form. Like, is he actually presenting this, you know, kind of lovable, if tragic, figure? 
Um, and then as it goes on, it just gets more and more merciless, as is the way with many Ulrich Seidel films, if you've seen any of his previous ones. And by the end of it, it is absolutely like abs eviscerating and grueling, but maybe the, the, the smartest thing I saw uh, is certainly this Berlinale. And you come out uh, really, um, feeling like you've been raked over the coals but and it's so it's one of those films that's difficult to recommend the actual experience of watching it but it is uh, subsequent to that when you think about it when you think about back about it it is just incredibly rewarding to think about i mean incredibly um everything the absolute opposite of everything we were talking about with coma so this is incredibly controlled this is incredibly pre-thought out um and so much so that there are times when you don't even notice the blade going in while you're watching and it's only afterwards you realize you're kind of bleeding out from those wounds. I think it's incredible. Um, and I think the fact that Michael, Michael Thomas, who plays uh, Richie Bravo, didn't win Best Performance in Berlin is the greatest travesty in, a, in some awards that, that were in a, in a very disappointing lineup of awards. That's the one that really got me. I, I think this is, it's, it's um, the, uh, the Turkish uh, lead of um, Rabia Kurnaz versus George W. Bush, which is not so, um, but yes, uh, just this this performance specifically to me feel has to have felt like it must have been when you first saw you know Robert De Niro playing Taxi Driver. It's this incredible, incredible synthesis of actor and role, which you you just know can never happen for this actor again. Um, it was the role was specifically designed for him, um, and he has this just incredible aura of fading swagger there's still a charisma there he's like this massive guy pouring himself into these ridiculous snakeskin outfits he has this seal skin jacket which deserves a co-star credit um it's just it's, it's an amazing portrayal and a really specific portrayal that gets at something incredibly um universal and incredibly harsh about the legacy of the sins of the father and and racism and you know, endemic racism systemic racism it's really just an incredible film yeah, I agree with everything Jessica said. I think it's great. Um, it's really, really strong, this film. And I mean, it reminded me of uh, early 70s American New Hollywood films. It, in particular, it reminded me of The King of Marvin Gardens um, by Bob Raffleson with Bruce Stern and Jack Nicholson. It's another film that is set uh, in a resort town or a, in, in, in the case of King Marvin Gardens is Atlantic City um, during the off season, um, during a time when the boardwalk and all the clubs and hotels are, are shut down for the most part. And for the first half hour, you think you're watching something or first hour, you think you're watching something as Jessica indicated, that's very kind of almost tender and intimate with this character. And, uh, and when at a certain point, decisive moment in the film, uh, this character's daughter uh, arrives and is demanding money. Uh, we're even so close to this character's perspective, perspective that we, we, we feel some sympathy for the situation she's placing him in and wonder what the real backstory is. Uh, but as it goes along and really in the final 20 minutes or so, uh, there are a series of uh, actions the character takes that kind of change your whole whole perspective on him, I think. And I think that's the coup of the movie. Uh, and, um, and it brings him in more alignment with the 
the, the character's father, who we see at the beginning, um, who is a, if not a former Nazi, then someone who at least remembers the Nazi past very fondly and with great nostalgia and who sings uh, Nazi war songs, um, battle songs uh, uh, to himself. Sounds like a Nazi. He's also, he's, he's, uh, he, he suffers from dementia and he's in a home. So, so you're not entirely sure how many of these things are remembered, things that he took part in or just songs that were around when he was a kid. Um, yeah. And likewise, the character of Richie Bravo, the lead character, he, he makes his bread and butter singing um, classic 1950s kind of popular songs. All of which were written for the film. Actually, so they they seem like classic 1950s, but they have they're rich with these cultural references to to the kind of pop kitsch culture of the 50s, um, particularly like the Western novels of Carl May and characters from those novels, all of which are rife with stereotypes about indigenous Americans, uh, brothel whores, all of that kind of stuff. And we think of it early on, we're prompted to think of it as just, oh, this is kind of quaint and almost sweet. He's singing to these elderly retired women. And, you know, it, it's, it's, this is m much of this is offensive, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's innocuous. But by the end, that all of that has been, the, the rug's really been pulled from underneath your feet. So yeah, I think it's a tremendously effective work. Yeah, and actually, just just to say as well, it's it's the first of two films. So there's going to be a, a second film which follows the brother played by Georg Friedrich, who we met meet very briefly in the in the prologue of the film. Um, and so the set, the next film is a film called Sparta. And the rumor was that actually the the there was a four hour cut which incorporate both both films that was submitted and then accepted for Berlin. And for some reason, in the last minute, um, they decided to actually make it into two films. This actually. Previously, was billed as it was going to be a trilogy called Wicked Games, but now, so now it seems we have Rimini and we have Sparta, but all of which is to say that this probably means that for that for fan, you know, for the Ulrich Seidel hive out there, assemble because it probably means that Sparta is very, very close to completion, and we can maybe hopefully look out for it in Cannes. And I know that you had a, you mentioned before uh, before we started recording uh, a film that you said was your favorite, not only of the festival but possibly of the year. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So this is a film called Unrest or Unruhe in Swiss German uh, by a Swiss director called Cyril Schäublin. Um, it's his second film. Um, it was in the Encounter selection. So I, actually, as I found kind of consistently throughout this Berlinale, I found a lot more um, films that I really responded to in the Encounter selection rather than in the main competition, which especially compared to last year's competition lineup, I thought was pretty weak. Um, but the uh, the encounter selection for me really uh, reached a crux with with unrest, and it actually then went on to win the best director award in the encounter selection, which I was really gratified by, but also kind of surprised by because this is the kind of film. I mean, I was smiling into my mask about five minutes in, just being like, "I am going to give this such a rave. I love this movie, and nobody else on the planet is going to like it." And um, so I was very happy also to hear that apparently Edo likes it a lot as well. Um, but so this is a, an almost impossible to describe um, <laughs> um, period film, I suppose you will call it. Um, and it is based, uh, I mean, I think in my review originally, I, the, the thing that I think it's probably based on 
is this there is a, a small incident where there is a you know historical figure called Kropotkin who is um, was a leader of a Russian leader of the anarchist movement um, and he went to visit this very small watchmaking valley in Switzerland called Saint Anier. Um, and in this what this watchmaking valley was already kind of a hotbed of, of anarchism um, and he uh, basically became sort of more politicized there and then that very valley this very small valley which just basically had a bunch of factories where people made watches um, were uh, became the the host of the first ever international anarchists con congress so out of this thing and the fact the linguistic coincidence because this is incredibly linguistically playful film as well so there's the linguistic coincidence that this uh, the anarchist conference happened here Kropotkin went there and became an anarchist there but also in a watch in I mean obviously Switzerland is rather famous for making watches so in a watch in a mechanism in a watch there's all these different little cogs and wheels and one of the very central ones which balances how how the mechanism works is actually called an unrest wheel so that's why the film is called unrest and for me that that's already a, a slightly orgasmic little like, or linguistic coincidence I love the fact that these unrest wheels are happening in the middle of watches, in the middle of clockwork that is happening where, uh, you know, this uh, movement that is all to do with social unrest um, is, is happening at the same time. So this is like the kind of the story of it, I suppose. It's the story of him coming to, to there. But, but one of the things that I find so interesting about Schäublin and one of the things I think that this, the reason I think this director is one of the most exciting new directors um, I've come, new European directors I've come across recently is that he has an absolutely we entirely weird and entirely singular way of shooting a, a story. Um, it's not really a story. It's a series of sketches. Even his, his the, the way he lays out a shot, uh, his shots are very often framed with the people at the extreme edge of the, of the frame. Um, and most of the frame is full of like trees or sky or the gables of buildings or something. Um, and uh, the, the conversation is often off camera, so you can hear the conversations happening. The conversations themselves are often weirdly transactional. They tend to do with like lots of lists of wages and lists of money and distances. So this is a film that's also about cartography, about photography. There's, a, there's a, a traveling photographer who comes. It's about celebrity a little bit because it's about this photographer who comes and not only takes photographs of the people, local people who are there and sells them to them. He also sells photographs that he has taken of other people and adjusts the price up or down based on how, how famous that person is or how much the, the, the person buying it might want to might want to get. So there's there's a whole lot about capitalism, about the movement of capital, about how we decide, how we apportion value to certain things, um, and also about watchmaking and also about exchanging boxes of matches and um, going for walks and falling in love a little bit. Falling in love? How could you go wrong? Well, no, there's a, it's, and that's, I mean, I, I don't want to play that up. That's a very little bit. Sounds beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. Yeah. And I, I feel like, again, uh, not having, you know, seen the film yet, but there's a way in which it, the description might see, might convey something twee, but I think it's actually quite formalist. And yeah, I will say lots of people found it just incredibly boring and opaque. And I, I can't understand them because I felt so, so enlivened and engaged with it all along. And, and this is this is this director's second film. And I actually was lucky enough to catch his first film, which is in 2017 in Locarno. It's a film called Those Who Are Fine. Ter absolutely terrible title that nobody can ever remember. Those Who Are Fine? 
those who are fine, which is it's actually the title of a Swiss German song. So it works in Swiss German, but the translation does not work at all. So, but those who are fine, which is in 2017 in, in Locarno, it was his debut film. And he uses a lot, of, it was contemporary set, that film. Um, and he used a lot of the same uh, sort of uh, shooting techniques and motifs that he uses here. But, but what's interesting is that that those who are fine is actually an extremely depressing film. It's really a film about the alienation of modern life. It's people reciting strings of numbers back and forth at each other, like bank codes and, and Wi-Fi codes, and and you know just 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 how how atomized we've all become. And so yet, yet despite the fact he's using very similar techniques in this his second film, um, he's using them to somehow much warmer and more whimsical and more uh, delightful ends, almost utopian ends. Yeah, almost utopian end. It almost kind of gives you a glimpse of utopia at the end. Um, not a literal glimpse, but like a, you know, imaginative glimpse of utopia, romantic glimpse. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think this is uh, dry ground burning aside, which we may or may not get to, um, which is a film in Forum or was in Forum. Uh, I, to me, this was the revelation of the festival. It, it's just a a work that's run, firing on all cylinders, and I, you know, I I don't really understand either people finding it boring because it's so materialist. I mean, everything is so it's so tactile. Uh, there are incredible sequences of people assembling these precision watch watches, um, and uh, it's just a kind of immersion in the details of uh, early industrial capitalist kind of world. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, that might make it sound very dark. Uh, usually we have images of like, you know, smoke choked, you know, factory floors and stuff. Here everything is very clean. Um, even the bad guys here, uh, they, they seem kind of affable bad guys. They're evil in a kind of nice way. And one of the things I sort of thought was most interesting about the film was uh, there are often um, people thanking each other uh, <laughs> at the ends of scenes. Uh, Could you please move out of the frame? Thank you. Could you please leave this area? Thank you. Uh, even the violent events that transpire never happened on an emotional or direct level, they, they happen structurally, which I think underlines the point of the film. And, uh, and it gives us a, a picture of, a, of an oddly, uh, a, a place where this small anarchist shop making, fa watch making factory and this larger capitalist factory are in an odd state of coexistence. Um, and uh, so I, I was, I found it charming and illuminating, enlightening in equal measure. Um, and I also think that uh, the idea of looping in this historical figure like Pyotr Kropotkin into a, a story with, I, I think that's more fictionalized, um, but without, but in a way that de demythologizes this character and his coming to a, a, a certain point as a young revolutionary um, was, uh, also just a nice way to handle this sort of radicalization of someone. And, and one of the reasons I think that works so well is actually the, the decision um, early on, I think, was to, to cast ex exclusively with local 
people from around the area. So not almost none of the people in it are professional actors. And because they're, you know, they're they're locally from the area, so they know the lingo, they're using the exact right um, uh, dialect and everything, apparently. Um, but they are also modern people and they're also not necessarily actors. So there's an incredible current of modernity that goes through, even though they're talking about, you know, they're wearing that the froofy hats and the, the award sort of weird, you know, get up that buttoned up um, uh, top hats and whatnot. Um, so even though they're all in costume and it's, it's the, I think the costume is really well done, um, there's this real sense of the, when they interact, there's a real casualness to them that you never see in period films. I mean, this is the opposite of a stuffy film. It's really airy and breezy and the way that they talk, um, even though it's very clearly uh, heightened and keyed to, to to pick up on certain things like that, that that exchange of numbers or the thanking, the politeness, um, the, the the constant giving people matchboxes, which I thought was really interesting. Often people ask for a light, and it always ends with the person who's giving them the light saying, "No, no, you keep the matchbox, keep the matches." So just like little things like that. But these exchanges are super casual. They just feel and they feel like they could have happened yesterday, and gratifyingly as well which is true to the time as well, a lot of these conversations happen between women. So even though sometimes they're fielding extremely abstruse political ideological con uh, concepts with each other, they're like, it's just these ladies with parasols talking about Marxism or talking about the differences between anarchism and Marxism, or, uh, you know, a pretty girl uh, in, a, in, a, in a frock um, going for a walk with her best man, but actually explaining quite quite lucidly the workings of the engineering workings of, of a clockwork watch. And, um, you know, so, so it's, it's uh, yeah, it's just, it's really utterly singular. Yeah. It imagines a past where it feels like anything is possible mm. because capitalism and anarchism, capitalism hadn't won yet. And there was a sense, right. That these ideologies were still coming together. They're still forming uh, they were still affecting each other, cross-pollinating, and th th that's a kind of lovely space for a film to inhabit because it's a space of imminence, you know. Yeah. Um, yes, and and uh, analogously, you can you can talk about that space being like the unrest wheel, which is the the part of the watch that balances both sides so that the mechanism can run evenly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, talking about unrest and radicalization. <laughs> I'm grasping here because this film sounds amazing. Uh, and the, the film that I'm kind of moving us toward is Nobody's Hero, which I don't really know how to build a segue. But I just think it's it, it was like genuinely strange and unexpected in a way that I want to dig into. I don't know, Edo, maybe you want to give us a, a kind of breakdown of the film? Oh my God, uh, this is a hard one to summarize. <laughs> um, but uh, the film concerns a kind of middle-aged, middle-class guy uh, in a small town in France. His name is Médéric. And uh, he, uh, at the very start of the film, catches uh, a glimpse of a, a streetwalker, a, a sex worker out um, uh, on her rounds and uh, is kind of struck with the la morfou and tries to approach her to um, pick her up. But at the same time, he clearly really likes her and um, is trying to convince her of this. And uh, she takes him back to her place of business in the hotel where she brings clients. And 
And it's kind of mildly ridiculous. Um, the whole kind of sense of what's happening. He's in a runner's jumpsuit and he's brought back to this hotel room and it seems like it's going to just be a kind of awkward but nice encounter. And then suddenly uh, on the television, there has been a terrorist attack in this small, sleepy French town. And the film complicates from there and more and more characters are added, including a young man who is perhaps the suspected, suspected uh, uh, um, uh, culprit in this terrorist bombing. And um, uh, the uh, clerk and uh, his young uh, charge at the hotel desk, um, as well as uh, the husband of the of, of the um, of the of the sex worker, and it just kind of builds and builds to become this communal portrait of France, um, but within this very specific context of um, of this particular town. And now I'm, yeah, Claremont Ferrell. And I loved it because of how it introduces simple classic types, middle-class types, uh, working-class types, uh, types from various um, of other, other films and genres that we're familiar with, and then gradually complicates in a comic way our understanding of these types of people. Um, the character, the, the lead character, Meririk, goes through, a, we, we're continually shifting our, our response to him, whether we like him or not. Uh, is he racist or is he, is he quite actually generous and, and, and accommodating? Um, and it became to me a picture of our own fluidity um, in uh, the judgments we make of others, um, how we define them, uh, represent them to each other, um, to ourselves. And uh, a kind of wonderfully humanist film in the end um, for the uh, kind of great generosity it has towards everyone who steps into its frame. And it reminded me of Renoir in that respect, and uh, particularly of the 30s, the 1930s Renoir films. I think that's um, a stretch, even as someone who liked the film. Well, Giraudy himself mentions Renoir. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the film is Renoir-esque. I'm sure he mentions it. He'd love for us to call it Renoir-esque. I mean, he, he specifically cites Rules of the Game and talking about the film. Um, I don't really think of Rules of the Game. Um, I thought of Le Crime de Monsieur Lange, um, which is a film about a community in an apartment complex. Um, and I don't know, I actually do see a Renoir aspect to the film and I see a classic, classical cinema aspect to the film. Um, it reminded me of some of the comedies of John Ford um, from the 30s as well. Um, films where we're introduced to, again, types, um, social types, and then, uh, but our, but the social types are never pegged. They're never kind of kept in strict dialectical position. The, the dialectics begin to cross and the types begin to complicate. I frankly found it <laughs> closer to another film I saw from the lineup, uh, Incredible But True, the Quentin Dupieux film, although it's not like as surreal, but it has that same kind of very... Uh, it's a, this kind of abandon and this almost provocative, you know, sense of bizarreness and ridiculousness, but in a more grounded socio-political context. And 
I think I'm a bit mixed on the film. I I was so surprised by the first hour or so, and there were some moments that were just laugh out loud funny, and at the same time, really getting at something quite contemporary about terrorism, you know, really getting at the kind of liberal white um, hand-wringing around the discourse around terrorism, because you know, this really central, the crux of the film is that when uh, Mederic and Isadora, who is the sex worker, they're like having sex at this hotel, there's a bomb blast. And I mean, I thought that was like really funny because it's like on the TV, this newscaster is talking about there being a terrorist attack, everyone stay home. And Mederic is just trying to like keep going. And he's like, oh, life must go on. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then what happens is there's this uh, young homeless Arab man, Salim, who starts showing up outside Mederik's building and asks to be let in and asks to be like, he wants, you know, to be allowed to sleep in the lobby when it's raining and asks for food and basically, you know, is is loitering around their building and various uh, residents of Mederik's building, you know, are generous toward him, but then they're also internally kind of conflicted about whether they should let this young man who might be one of the suspected terrorists in but then would, I mean, would that suspicion make them racist? Are they being Islamophobic? Are they being cruel? Are they just being cautious? Maderik even calls the cops at one point and Salim is taken to the police station and then released. So there's all this kind of dancing around what it means to be civil, what it means to be tolerant, what it means to be liberal, and at the same time have this just... um you know, the sense of unease and the sense of distrustfulness that the discourse around terror just embeds. Um, and, you know, there's an Arab couple in the building. I This, I thought, was one of the funniest lines in the whole script. Who This Arab man, El Aloui, is especially suspicious of Salim and is the one who insists that Salim must not be let in. Who knows who he, who he is? You know, we should turn him over to the police. And at one point, Medrick says to another white uh, resident, did you think it's suspicious, you know, how aggressively... Uh, you know, he is, how aggressive he is about, you know, us not helping Salim. Maybe he's hiding something. And, you know, I mean, there's ju it's just this, like, cloud of anxieties that come up, not just around terror, but around what it means to be a good white citizen, I think, that the film captures. There's this hilarious dream sequence where <laughs> Menerik wakes up, oh, thinks that he wakes up and... That Salim and like a group of Muslim men in, you know, traditional outfits are just like praying and just chanting Allahu Akbar in front of like a TV screen with just terrorist attacks. And it's, and Medrick like comes out and he's like completely naked and he's like calling the police and he's like, there are terrorists praying in my living room. I, it's, I don't know. I thought it was just this, it, it just made fun of the like i said the the kind of psychological and psychosocial response to terrorism in a way that i found pretty daring and unusual but the film completely falls apart at the end it really does become a quentin dupieux film by the end it just gets so ridiculous i think the character of isadora the sex worker really gets the short end of the stick i mean god the way her, her character ends up in a very kind of um sorry 
place that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And Salim and the other kind of kooky characters who at first seemed so charming and funny and at the same time politically provocative, it all just it all just dissolves into something just unthought out. And and for me, it, it was just a disappointing end to what felt like a pretty promising setup. And I see Jessica nodding. I just I just wanted to, to say, it. I mean, it's really, for me, it's very ironic that you're saying that it turns into a Quentin Dupier film at the end, because the Quentin Dupier film that was here, Incredible True, is to my mind infinitely better than no, Nobody's Hero. And actually one of the, the really interesting things about Incredible But True, the Dupier film, is that it has a, a much stronger ending than most recent Dupuis films. So I, I just thought that, that was funny because it's operating for me in a completely it different way. It does have a good ending, um, yeah. It does, has a really good ending, and I think it builds to something unusually profound for that director. Um, but uh, yes, which which nobody's hero. I mean, I absolutely agree that it falls apart in the end. I think I, I disagree a little bit that, it, it, that, it's, that there's much to fall apart prior to that. I mean, from, from the beginning, it feels, it feels like almost from the outset. I mean, I, and I liked the first five minutes and it was like, you know, so I was actually kind of into this, but then it just, when it immediately, real, when I realized quite early on, that I did, just did not think it was going to be able to carry off this melding of body French, the body French farce tradition, sex farce tradition with, with a serious thing about terrorism and racism in modern day France. And as soon as, and, it, and if you're not, if you get off that train at any point, there's really no, no part at which you can get back on it. Even the, I mean, the, the, the dream sequences and the, and the jokes that you're talking about. I mean, I, I found those just sort of weirdly glib actually, because I think it's, it's quite easy to, to, to decide that you're going to make a point by putting this particular um, point of view into the mouth of one of your only Arab characters you know your only other Arab characters and then sort of standing back and saying like look 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 isn't this isn't this a, an amazing commentary on this because but actually this is all set up all as in all always in farce everything is artificial you know pawns are moved around the chessboard in order to be in a certain configuration so I don't think that he's happening on any sort of organically happening on any particular insights into modern day racism or the way the way that we actually interact because it is such an artificial setup so it just it just really didn't work for me from after about the first half an hour but it is kind of the absurdity I mean I think that it is not any kind of realistic critique of racist France, but it is about the absurdity of the discourse of racism, of Islamophobia, you know, and I mean, I think that that to me is insightful, maybe not in this kind of incisive critical way, but it is, it's worth highlighting how like almost like a comedy of errors, this stuff often is, you know, and I, I do think that the fact that Merrick starts suspecting this Arab neighbor I think that really speaks to the all the kind of acrobatic leaps that psychological leaps that happen around racism and terrorism. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I think that there's there are films that do. I mean, I think the, the perfect example is Four Lions. Oh, yeah. I mean, which is like the best film on on the war, which which I don't which I don't. So I don't think this is impossible. I don't think this marriage of tones is impossible. I just don't really think that he manages it here. But I was thinking of Four Lions because I love that film. I don't think any film has managed to poke fun at the war on terror in the same way. And, you know, that film has uh, Pakistanis as as the leads. So I was thinking about like, but this is really a film about whiteness from a white perspective. You know, it's, it's really not about the Arabs. It's not about terrorism. It really is about just 
the white socio-psychological kind of mindset around these things, you know, and, and the kind of delusions that are constructed within that mindset. Within the context of it wanting on some level to comment on, on, on terrorism and, and, you know, to play in that sandpit, if we're allowed to say that, then my problem actually is maybe, and maybe this is way too schematic to be thinking of, but the, the character of Médéric himself is also a farcical character. There's, there's no control group. So there's no sort of like base level on like everything is, is going crazy from out of here. There's no straight man. Exactly. There's no straight man and there's no there's no audience proxy, really, because you never know where you are with Medic. Medic is, a, for me, a very poorly drawn character himself. But like there's even the fact that like people keep referring to this schlubby guy who's mostly seen in tracksuit bottoms with his receding hairline as a hunk as a I can't compete with a hunk like you or a stud like you or whatever they are so so uh, within the context of that I don't know how seriously to take what he thinks about his Arab neighbor for example because this is a world in which people apparently generally on the street look at him and think wow this is a stud but it, that is how the this kind of paranoia works right that is that is why it works because there is no there is no straight ground. There is no objective or point of reference. I, I don't agree. I don't agree. I don't. I don't think that you can have sort of. I don't think that you can really make a point about paranoia unless we understand the baseline off which it's working. And here, I, I don't know what, what what perspective I'm supposed to take at any time at any point. I can see the critique, the structural critique that you, you guys are making, and I don't. I can't really answer it because, to be honest, I didn't. I kind of lost a sense of the structure, which maybe is points to its weakness. Uh, like about halfway through, you know, I kind of it just it complicates so much, and there are so many reversals and and changes of allegiance and and alignment um, that I I sort of I, I think I kind of lost a feel for that. For me, it just worked on a kind of very immediate level. And on a, like a human level, and I, I, I love his his casting. I, I, I just think that the people in these in the films, the actors in the film, in in, in this film and his earlier films too, but in in this film, it really kind of rose to the surface for me. They just they don't look like people in movies. You know, they look like everyday people, and I and um, I think that that's kind of part of the politics of the film as well. Um, and I just love the this sense of, you know, at the end, it becomes a bit of a kind of almost like a fortress Western or something like that, where everyone is kind of rallying around this apartment building. And I, to, to me, it, it was a film about community and the formation of community and the formation of unexpected communities between people who are not ideologically or uh, socially um, from the same uh, uh, categories. Um, and the configuration that we leave, that we're left with at the end could feel random, I suppose. At the same time, it just feels like that that's what the film is trying to enact is, 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 is to jolt these characters out of themselves and into new, a, a new, a new society. Um, so I don't know, I, I, it worked for me on that kind of immediate level, uh, but I can't really, I can't really deny that structurally it, it has weaknesses. This seems like a good point at which to kind of like start to wrap things up here. I want to give you guys both an opportunity to talk about a movie I know both of you liked. Uh, you, were, you were discussing it before. We want a stronger ending than nobody's hero. So yeah, let's <laughs> let's end on a let's end on a high note. 
Okay, or or we could end on a small, slow but steady note. Oh, oh Ooh, perfect! That okay. that is that is a transition uh, again in the encounter selection. Really, a really well named. Uh, it's kind of a difficult name to remember, but once you watch the film, it's weirdly easier to remember. So small, slow but steady. Yeah. Mm. Who's the filmmaker? Sho Miyaki, who has I think made a couple of films before. Yes, has made has made several films before. So this isn't a, a debut, but it's. In fact, I think the last film that he made was some sort of big budget, not manga thing, but anyway, some big budget action movie. So very, very um, uh, unlike the rhythms of Small, Slow, But Steady. So uh, this film is just, it's a, it's a really just perfectly modulated small film um, that in a, in a strange way I actually think is analogous um, to the uh, Berlinale Golden Bear winner, Alcaraz. Um, but for me, is a much more successful film. Um, and so both films actually deal with the loss of a very beloved place. The, the sort of, it's a sort of slightly prelapsarian idea that there are certain places that we might not even know to appreciate um, while they're around, but then we suddenly have these heightened moments of, of adoring them um, when we know that they're about to go. So in the case of Small, Slow, But Steady, that is a gym. Um, it's a, a boxing gym. Um, which is actually, I think, the oldest one, supposed to be the oldest one in Tokyo. Um, and it is frequented by this uh, deaf female boxer who came to boxing uh, as a kind of a, an outlet for, you know, she, she was, I suppose she was frustrated in various other ways. Okay, and found boxing, created a, 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 a this, had this lovely, um, very uh, warm, but also very Japanese and reserved relationship with the, the, the guy who runs the, the boxing gym, the older man who runs the boxing gym. Um, and then also then her, her two trainers who work at the gym. And it's just from the very beginning, we know already know that the gym is in trouble. They're, they're, it's set during the pandemic. And this is one of those films, which I think is such a beautiful, one of the beautiful things. Um, there have been a few films that happened. And actually I would say Claire Denise is one of those as well. Uh, films that that are set during the pandemic, they acknowledge that it exists, but they don't make it its subject. But um, so we we hear, hear early on in the film that the 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 the, um, the boxing gym is is actually losing it's losing clients, it's losing its boxers because of the pandemic, and 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 the 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 guy who runs it is facing financial troubles, um, and so sort of closure is hovering on the horizon. He actually also has a as a health scare and a very serious health scare. Um, and meantime, we're, we're mostly involved with the, with the girl who's the deaf boxer and her very small, very quiet life that she lives, but that is also somehow feels extremely momentous in the moment while you're watching it. I mean, it's a film that's very small in every way, except emotionally, which becomes sort of bigger and spreading and more generous. And it really builds to an absolutely truthful and not compromised at all, not sort of, not romanced at all ending, which is like simultaneously absolutely the thing that had to happen and the thing that will break your heart and the thing that will kind of lift you up as well. Sounds beautiful. It sounds like a real uh, a gem. And uh, Edo, you were also a fan, is that is that correct? Yeah, low-key stunner. Ooh. You know, it's it's shot on 16 millimeter in, in, a, in a way that's not, I think a lot of films today, you know, they're, they're turning to film I think for, uh, especially for it, like films registration of color, but this is a very drab film and it's set in very drab parts of Tokyo, parts that we don't usually see in films. 
and it remains very tonally consistent and true to that um, modernity, this kind of quotidian rhythms of a boxer's life, a boxer who, you know, has to make her living somehow else. She's not, she's a pro, but she's a pro who's just starting out um, and who it doesn't seem like however good she's going to be has much of a shot at stardom or something like that. So she has to make her living um, as a, a maid in a hotel. Likewise, all the other characters seem to have other other jobs that they do, including her trainers. And it brings into, as a result of this, as a result of the pandemic being acknowledged, as Jessica was talking about, it, there's just a lovely feeling, almost like a Japanese film from the 50s, uh, for like real middle class or working class life in like modern day Japan. That sense of realism, I think is, is just, you know, just to kind of keeps, keeps everything grounded and keeps all the points that the film has to make about resilience or um, respect, self-respect, keeps it like landing always at a very one-to-one level. So I was, you know, uh, it's, it's a film I watched actually after my t- actual time in Berlin. I watched it on a link. Um, and I really, I really was disappointed that I, I had had missed it actually in a theater because of all the films that were at Berlin this year, it really just kind of felt like, oh, this is kind of life right now. This is all. This is sort of all of us in a way, um, and all all the, the the issues we have to work work our way through just to kind of keep going. And so, yeah, I, I it's was one of the films of the festival for me, no question. And I, I think that's I think that's a really good point about like it's so small, and yet it's one of those films that makes the case that the smaller the film, sometimes the bigger the screen you should see it on. And it, it really does have those rhythms that play, I think, play incredibly well. I happen to know that the one of the publicists involved in it, and she was she got on very very early on, and and she was sort of and I was you know feeling out before the whole thing when I knew this was going to be a very pressurized festival. I was asking if I could get links, and she was you know she's very helpful, and she will do it all the time. And she was saying, well, of course, you know, I can I could do it, but in this case, and she's a she's a good friend of mine, so she's like, in this case, I think this one is really maybe one that you should go and see in the cinema just because, and not because of it's grandiose landscapes or anything or, or you know it's epic Lawrence of Arabia themes um it's it's just it's it has that kind of uh, a ticking rhythm that you really want to lose yourself in um and I also think just to to bring it back then maybe to the beginning that the, the other the great thing about it is this this central character that he draws because she's she's prickly she's not always likable and yet she's somebody that I completely and utterly believed in every moment and was entirely on the side of as opposed to, for example, the Juliette Binoche character in Claudine's Fire or Both Sides of the Bay. Jessica just couldn't resist a one final dig. She had to dig it and dig it. <laughs> just in. wanted to make clear that I'm not a person who's like dying for everybody to be lovable. And um, the character here is not lovable either, but she is consistent and I believe her in a way that I maybe didn't with Juliette Binoche. And also, yeah, and so that's the last note. We'll end on that. Yeah. <laughs> the Juliette Binoche, bad. Yes, first, first actress ever. Yeah. We'll let Jessica, we'll let Jessica kind of hoist herself on that petard. Fully <laughs> cancelled. Well, thank you both for joining us, and thank you to our listeners who've uh, joined us on this journey through the lineup of this year's Berlin Film Festival. Um, we appreciate you guys both. 
we have dispatches in our letter also talking about other movies um one coming this week as well and some interviews so we'll keep i'm sure we'll keep chewing on these berlin movies actually for the rest of the year uh, these already seem like standouts but yeah thank you so much thank you thank you bye bye The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.